think that we live in a in a world that has been disenchanted. Uh, we have taken, uh, as Lewis said, we have taken science to scientism to a point where we believe that it explains or explains away everything. The medievals uh, would have said that a waterfall is inherently beautiful. That's the way God has made it. Uh, a modern might say, no, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's something that you bring to the table. It's internal. It's um, this is what toward the end of the medieval period was called nominalism. Do things really exist or are they just what we make them? Yeah. Uh, I think Lewis saw postmodernism coming. He, mm. saw, he saw moral relativism already there, mm -hmm. already at the gates. That was the voice of Chris Armstrong. Chris is a church historian from Wheaton College uh, in the Chicagoland area in beautiful Illinois. Uh, he's a uh, church historian. He's an author. He was talking with us uh, about his latest book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. That interview took place uh, with our producer, Daniel Menjivar, at Acton University this year. Uh, that was back in June, and that interview is our highlight this week on Radio Free Acton. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. This is, as usual, your host, Mark Vandermoss, uh, welcoming you to the podcast of the Acton Institute. Good to have you along with us. We'll also be uh, talking with our chief cultural correspondent and, I might add, a newly minted cultural columnist for Forbes magazine. Congratulations, Bruce. Uh, and Bruce Edward Walker is his name. We'll talk today about the four-hour Monterey Pop Festival documentary. And just to be clear, we do not talk for four hours about the documentary. The documentary is four hours long. Our discussion is much shorter, but we cover that festival, uh, some of the lasting uh, cultural images that come from that festival and its impact in popular culture uh, in uh, the United States and beyond. So good edition of Radio Free Acton for you today uh, here on the podcast of the Acton Institute. If you have not done so already... Uh, make sure you head over to iTunes or Google Play and subscribe to Radio Free Act and tell your friends about it. And uh, we would much appreciate uh, your continued patronage of the podcast. Right now, though, let's uh, turn the mic over to Daniel Menjavar uh, talking with Chris Armstrong from Wheaton College here on Radio Free Acton. This is Daniel Menjavar for Radio Free Acton. Uh, today at Acton University, we have Chris Armstrong, uh, writer of the brand new book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thanks, Daniel. I'm glad to be talking with you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Chris, what's, uh, what's, tell me about your book. What's, uh, what's it all about? Sure. The book arose out of um, a sense of lack in evangelical Protestantism on uh, topics of everyday life and work. Um, how do we, you know, where do we get our wisdom for um, just how we live every day? And I think evangelicalism has been kind of selective. We've picked a few issues of private morality, a sure. few kind of public issues. We're really good on that stuff, but there's a whole, whole sort of bandwidth of stuff that. Um, and we're kind of amnesiac, right? Tradition, what's that? You, know, you set that aside. <laughs> sure, sure. So, uh, as, a hist as a church historian, I thought I'd give it a crack. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I had the pleasure of attending your lecture, uh, which was great. Thanks. Uh, I enjoyed it greatly. Um, and part of, uh, part of what uh, really intrigued me was sort of your take on, on stories. Mm. You mentioned C.S. Lewis's mm -hmm. um, sort of a medieval view in, and so in his works on the hideous strength. Uh, and until we have faces, uh, I thought I thought that was great. What do you what do you think or would imagine 
uh, sort of Lewis's takes on modern sort of stories. Mm. Uh, it comes immediately comes to mind sort of Harry Potter, okay, uh, yeah. American yeah. Gods is a, is a TV show that's kind of right. dealing with sort of some sort of spirituality, uh, sort of modern takes on sort of stories like that. I've thought about this a couple times with Harry Potter, and I've w- asked myself. He said at one point he talks about modern stories at one point um, about a a poor sort of modern story as Hmm. wish fulfillment. Hmm. In other words, this isn't something that has a kind of moral fabric to it about who we really are as human beings. This is more catering to, you know, I wish I could uh, take a potion that would allow me to take four classes at the same time. Or maybe maybe nobody wishes that except Hermione, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, But, you know, I, I wish I could do things as a kid that really are more adults yeah. and you know how do I get there it wouldn't be great to make a magic potion to do this or that sure. um, but I actually think there's more than that going on in the in the Potter stories I think that that would be selling it short and uh, and certainly to see that many kids just get excited about the world of imagination and about yeah. reading uh, I think you would certainly have had some sympathy for that um, I you know for him for Tolkien for a lot of their friends those two in particular, they love genre stories. They love science fiction. They love, you know, fantasy didn't really exist. Tolkien kind of invented it. Hmm. Uh, would they have liked somebody today like uh, Patrick Rothfuss, the, the King Killer Chronicles? Mm-hmm. I just started reading that. I'm a few chapters in. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And it, it, it allows you to cast yourself into different situations, to imagine yourself not always in a wish, wish fulfillment mode, but a sense of like, what would I do? It, it points to the great adventure of simply being a human being yeah. and the moral decisions that you have to make. Every story has moral decisions, even if, like in Game of Thrones, they're kind of nasty ones most yeah. of the time, right? But at least we're talking about rea- <laughs> you know, the moral realities of the world. Yeah, so. that's fascinating that you say sort of wish fulfillment as a story, um, as sort of as a, as a cheap form of story. Yeah. What sort of is the ideal story that we tell? What, what, yeah, mm. what does that look like? It's interesting, you know. For, Lewis got critiqued by Tolkien for maybe over for being overly didactic in his in his writing. It was, uh, but I think I mean that's a fair critique. Lewis was a moral philosopher. I think first, last, and always when yeah. he was writing his children's stories and his his other stories as well. Mm-hmm. But what would he have said would have made a good story? As a moral philosopher, I think he would have said one that is honest about who we are as mm-hmm. human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, that is is not is not involved in some fantasy of human perfectibility. I think uh, he would have had probably a high tolerance for grit, realism, you know, swearing, whatever. Sure. As long as you're not portraying people as something that they're not, which mm. is perfect or perfectible in this life. Yeah. Um, and then I would say, you know, we mentioned we're talking in the talk about. His quote, uh, what does he say? Uh, uh, Reason is the organ of truth, a natural organ of truth, and imagination is the natural organ of meaning. I think he would look, he'd think a good story was a story that got to that level of meaning. It was really about what truths mean to us, not just where stories are preachy. And his friend Dorothy Sayers was really big on this too. Uh, where the where the art form is simply used as a vehicle to preach at people, to, to deliver some sort of cognitive thing or to be morally heavy-handed. I don't think he would have had much patience for that. <laughs> um, and I don't either. So no, I agree no, no, with no, him no. there. Um, the title of your book is fascinating, too. What would you say is sort of the biggest difference between sort of medieval and modern Christians? Sure, sure. Yeah, I really think that it's it's this division between the sacred and the secular. Hmm. I mean, I think that we live in a, in a world that has been disenchanted. Uh, we have taken uh, 
as Lewis said, we have taken science to scientism to a point where we believe that it explains or explains away everything. The medievals uh, would have said that a waterfall is inherently beautiful. That's the way God has made it. Uh, a modern might say, no, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's something that you bring to the table. It's internal. It's um, This is what toward the end of the medieval period was called nominalism. Do things really exist or are they just what we make them? Yeah. Uh, I think Lewis saw postmodernism coming. He, mm. saw, he saw moral relativism already there, mm -hmm. already at the gates. So there's men without and, chess sort of thing. That, right, mm -hmm. exactly. And so the big difference, um, it would be that sense that there's a, uh, Charles Taylor would put it, there's a continent of what's real and what's true that's yeah. there. There's a mountain range that's there. You may not like it, you may throw yourself against it, and the modern or the postmodern would say, no, it's just um, it's just whatever we make it. It's our power plays. It's our it's our way of, of forming and shaping the world and bending it to our will. Yeah. And nothing is to stop us from going any way we want to go. Yeah. And he would have been terrified probably. And but I mean, I think well, that hideous strength probably is a little bit prophetic. And things hmm, like yeah. uh, you know what we can do with genetics now. Mm -hmm. What we can do. Um, what people are morally ready to do. Yeah, we, uh, we just grew a, we just grew a lamb in a womb, right? Yeah. An artificial womb. What's yeah. nothing stopping right. us there? So that's right, and we're going to see a lot more. Yeah. Um, it's a little terrifying. A little terrifying. A little terrifying. Yeah. There. we maybe need a little more medieval good sense to get us <laughs> through what's coming. So. Well, that's what we have your book for, right? Yeah. Thanks. Uh, where, where can we find? Uh, where, where can we find it? Oh, sure. Um, there's a website actually. Uh, it's on. I think it's medieval-wisdom.com. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can download the first chapter there. You can mm -hmm. see people's comments on it. Perfect. There's some little video clips, and it has links through to Amazon if you must, or various independent booksellers. Oh, fantastic! So, fantastic. Yeah, I think it's medieval-wisdom.com. Hyphen, hyphen <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for giving thanks us a lot of your time. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks. Well, we're back once again with Bruce Edward Walker, our chief cultural correspondent here on Radio Free Acton, for another edition of Upstream. Because, of course, uh, where, where is politics, Bruce? It is far downstream from culture. So we're actually going to talk about the important stuff today again. Uh, and uh, good to have you back, by the way. Always good to have you in studio. Great to be here. And uh, and we have some anniversaries uh, coming up. Uh, it, it seemed we're hitting pop culture anniversaries all the time now. And uh, you want to talk a little bit about the Monterey Pop Festival, which is uh, coming up on a significant anniversary. Well, actually, uh, it, we, we just passed the anniversary, uh, the 50th anniversary of Monterey Pop in 1967. A huge, huge festival, one of, one of the, the, the big preeminent festivals to uh, feature pop musicians. They, they were trying to emulate the uh, popularity of the folk festivals, and uh, they succeeded quite well on, on the merits of who they had show up. Uh, there was Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Who, The Mamas and the Papas, Simon and Garfunkel, The Association, Eric Burden and the Animals. Hugh Masekela, of course. Hugh Masekela. We, we discussed Hugh Masekela beforehand, and I was asking, who in the world is Hugh Masekela? And that, that's, that leads me to my question. For those of us who are a bit younger and weren't around to experience the Monterey Pop Festival or read about it at the time, what are some of the, it's, it's one of those things that where there are really iconic moments in music history that happened there. Just list off some of the things that, that we would know from the Monterey Pop Festival. Well, this was the, uh, the first time that many people had ever seen Janis Joplin and when she went out and did Ball and Chain 
you actually see the camera cut to the audience and you see Mama Cass mouthing, wow, because it really was a stellar, stellar performance. And uh, this was Jimi Hendrix, uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience. They're basically their, their first appearance in the United States because uh, their manager was uh, Chaz Chandler from The Animals and that's where he put him together with the other members of the, the experience. And it was on the recommendation of one of the members of the board of directors, Paul McCartney, that Hendrix headline the show. And of course, this is where Hendrix set his guitar on fire. This is where he set his guitar on fire in order to upstage the act that preceded him, which was the Who, who were notorious for smashing their instruments. I think he actually uh, he he succeeded there because the the iconic moment really is Hendrix. Is there anything that the Who did that's particularly memorable from that show? Well, you're treading on uh, dangerous ground. I there, know, Mark, I because know. I I am the world's biggest Who fan, <laughs> and I I think that uh, they they could do no wrong. I, I'm I'm coming at it from the angle that what a casual uh, a more casual fan of the of the genre in general what would we recognize from it well obviously hendrix setting his guitar on fire is one of the greatest moments in rock history uh, and it came from that show so in that particular context hendrix did something perhaps more memorable culturally than the who did well maybe yes maybe no i i i think to the uh the audience that is used to seeing images as opposed to knowing the, the full history that, yes, Jimmy would probably be the artist who stole the show. Very good entirely. point. Very good point. The, the, the visual versus the, the, any other type of memory, that, that makes a huge difference. Right. And, and, and watching a musician stimulate coitus with his instrument that he has just set on fire is going to stay with you a little bit longer than watching Keith Moon you know, blow his drums up and... Pete Townsend smashing his guitar against the stage. Now, it occurs to me as you list off some of the names here, I, I, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix come to mind. Both of them, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, both of them were dead before 1970, correct? Uh, no, after 1970. After but, 70? Right, but uh, uh, not not that much longer afterwards. But uh, they, they had uh, a brief fling with fame before uh, they took the long dirt nap. And, and you think about the impact that, artists like that had in such but it was such a brief period of time really it was only a couple of years uh in this in the same way as the the beatles were only like half a decade uh and yet they had such an amazing impact it's the i guess it speaks to the quality of the the material that was coming out at the time and i i couldn't agree with you more and i i think it's it's a shame that uh there was no one there to help them check themselves before they wrecked themselves uh, the the who lasted for quite a bit longer. Uh, you know, uh, I believe it was in 1978 or 79 when uh, Keith Moon finally passed away from uh, an overdose of pills that were meant to help him with his alcoholism. And then uh, John Entwistle, the anniversary of his death was just is also this summer. Uh, I think it's 15 years now. And Ant Ant Wilson has the distinction of not, uh, I I believe he died of natural causes, not something, uh, doing something stupid. Um, Well, um, I think there was a lady of the evening and uh, some white nose candy that had something to do with that. I retract my statement and uh, I will, apparently I I haven't heard the whole John Ant Wilson story. Well, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That is true. That is true. What happens in the who sometimes probably should just stay with the who right well the the big scandal at that point in time was that the who were embarking on a world tour the 
day after Entwistle passed away, and they just found a replacement for him, Pino Palladino, and went out and did it anyway. And a lot of people were like, this is disrespectful to the memory of John Entwistle. And to be fair, it's incredibly disrespectful to the, the memory of John Entwistle to do it the following day. Well, but, you know, Pete Townsend said, hey, you know, it's rock and roll, and uh, it's a business, and we have a lot of people who are counting on us, and uh, we're probably counting on uh, ticket receipts here. So I'm not really sure how to interpret that, but uh, I didn't have tickets for that tour, but I've seen The Who on many, many occasions, and they're coming up here in Grand Rapids pretty soon, so uh, I'll probably be here to see that, especially if I can expense account. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll make a way for that to happen. Fantastic. In terms of Monterey Pop, though, uh, you mentioned the box set that's available. What, what, what are we talking about there? Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. It seems that every year they come out with an, another box set, and uh, the one I have is several years old, and uh, they, they keep uh, getting releases from bands that perform there that haven't had their performances available in the past. That's one way to keep it fresh. Yes, absolutely. But I, I think I need to talk a little bit about one of the greatest performances of the Monterey Pop Endeavor that resulted in the performer, well, it didn't result in his, his death, but um, it preceded his death by just a, several months, and that is uh, Otis Redding. And uh, it's unfortunate that Otis Redding, who had, was just then reaching the peak of his career and uh, had a hit single, one of the first performers to have a posthumous hit single, uh, sitting on the dock of the bay, uh, passed away shortly thereafter a just scorchingly wonderful set. Artist that, uh, as, I, as I'm looking at the lineup for Monterey Pop, an artist, uh, a group that was not at Monterey Pop, but uh, in the, uh, we're, we're in the same era, The Grateful Dead. Um, there's a new documentary out about the dead. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yes, uh, What a Long Strange Trip. It's a four-hour documentary on the Grateful Dead. It's interminably long. Uh, it's probably longer than uh, most Grateful Dead shows who that are notoriously uh, long, almost like a Bruce Springsteen concert. Well, the Grateful Dead, the first great jam band, really, correct? Well, um, I would hesitate to say great. <laughs> but... Yeah. Well, uh, great in a, in a manner of speaking. They, they were the first known, uh, the, the first big act known to be a jam band. Is that Would that be fair? I would say that's probably fair, even though I would put anything that the Allman Brothers did on Live at the Fillmore against anything that the Grateful Dead were doing at that point in time, although the, uh, the blues-based songs of the Allman Brothers and a little bit jazzier than what uh, the Grateful Dead were doing. And, and, and both of them have their merits. I, I would just prefer the Allman Brothers. So talk about the uh, the documentary again. Four hours long and, uh, and uh, it, it, comparable in length to a concert. Right. And it's very interesting. I'm not the world's greatest Grateful Dead fan, but I, I do appreciate a lot of what they, they were able to accomplish. But it's, it's also sad and very disturbing. Uh, the, the hippie ethos and... Um, I'm of an age where I can recall, you know, the 70s where it was live and let live, basically hands off, let people make their own decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And, but this goes beyond the libertarian aspect, uh, individualism. It's a rejection of the community that supposedly belongs in rock and roll where you look out after each other. And when you count the number of dead crew members and band members over the years who just totally burned out on terrible drugs or alcoholism. I mean, you have, you know, Pigpen, who was dead by the 
time he was 27 from alcohol abuse. You have other members that were just totally deep sixing their lives on, on heroin and what have you. The band members essentially saying, this is your choice. This is what you want to do. And we're not going to interfere with the choices that you're making. I find that really kind of sad. And I, I, I think it repudiates a lot of what the counterculture was all about, which was, you know, taking care of not just each other, but taking care of the environment, uh, taking care of individuals who might be sent off to foreign wars. So I, I, I have a real problem with, with the Grateful Dead documentary because a lot of them don't come across as extremely nice or caring, compassionate individuals. Yeah, the problem doesn't sound like it's with the documentary. It's with the dead, the, the dead themselves. Uh, it, and what, to what extent does that come, you know, the counterculture in the, of the late 60s was in a lot of ways an explicit rejection of the, the sort of traditional values that had undergirded America for a long time, the sexual mores and the, the, the importance of the family and things of that nature. Uh, is, is there a connection between the rejection of those traditional values, uh, e- even uh, cre- to, to try to create a community that's loving and caring? Uh, but is, is there a line that you can draw from the rejection of the old to uh, the corruption of the new? I think you are, are on to something, Mark. It, I am the biggest fan of music of that era, but when you, when you look at what the, that era hath wrought subsequently, you have to think— Maybe they were wrong. Maybe they they were not onto something. The rejection of cultural norms, the rejection of spiritual norms, uh, chasing after other spiritualities beyond Judeo-Christianity to find uh, an answer to the spiritual needs, the spiritual hunger that uh, young people always have, and you know, even people my age and uh, people from your generation, you're, you're quite a bit younger than I am. And I, I, I find it sad and disturbing that uh, the, the void in individuals' lives had to be filled with, with alcohol to the extent that it wrought death and drugs and, and what have you, because these were all life-negating rather than the life-affirming music that you see performed at Monterey and uh, in the early part of uh, the, the Grateful Dead's career. And ju- I mean, just off the top of my head thinking about this, you know, if, if uh, it's almost as if subsequent decades uh, have sort of their stereotypical thing that, we, that, that the culture has tried to replace the old values with. So in the 60s, it was uh, sort of a sexual free love ethos. In the 70s, it started turning towards drugs. In the 80s, maybe it was uh, money. You know, and so on and so forth. We it, it, there there seems to be a continual turning to different things to fill that void, but they don't actually work. No, it, un- unfortunately, that that is the case. Uh, you know, we we can't go back to the days of Bobby V and Bobby Vinton, or Elvis Presley, where it's uh, you know Connie Francis is the girl you want to ask to the sock hop on Friday night. And you know, I'm not I'm not saying that we should go back to that because I I think that there was a wonderful. Uh, experimentation that was uh, coming from the world of jazz that uh, was also, you know, in turn, rock and roll was feeding jazz music and that wrapped up with uh, uh, jazz fusion music from the 1970s, where there are wonderful musicians out there writing wonderful, wonderful songs. Uh, It's just unfortunate that the hangers-on of the industry were able to corrupt it to such an extent that... uh, Many people uh, 
lost marriages, lost their lives, lost uh, everything. And and because of the, you know, we're just talking about the, the industry perhaps there, but because of the influence and the power of the industry that goes far beyond just the people who were involved in making the music, making the movies, making all the different uh, cultural products. It's, it's the culture itself that absorbs. Oh, that. certainly. Certainly. I, I think that uh, to a large extent, uh, the, uh, the grunge rock movement of uh, the early to mid nineties uh, had many wonderful qualities and it's, it's, fortunate that we have many of those musicians who are still around and creating wonderful music now but boy it sure is a a, a darn shame that uh member you know scott wheeland and uh, kurt cobain and other members of these bands have shuffled off the mortal coil and unnecessarily and it, it it's just it's a pathetic shame well, Bruce, let's uh, let's wrap this up and circle back to Monterey Pop because uh, it, it's a little bit more of a cheery uh, thing to end on. But it's uh, there's also the point that at the at the beginning of all of this, before uh, before the drugs and and uh, alcohol took effect in a lot of places, there was a real affirmation of life. There was a much more uh, vibrant feel to the to the movement than than what it ended up being. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just to see. How life was embraced in, the, say, the music of Otis Redding, even uh, the youthful aggression of The Who and the, the, the beautiful pop poetry of Paul Simon performing with Simon and Garfunkel. It's amazing. It's life-affirming. It, it harkens back to a time that was maybe not as innocent as we would like to depict it as, but at least it, it still resonated with the Christian values that preceded it. Bruce Edward Walker, it's always good to talk with you and go upstream uh, here on Radio Free Act. And thanks, and we look forward to joining you again. Thank you, Mark. I left my home in Georgia And I headed for the Frisco Bay Cause I've got nothing to live for Look like nothing's gonna come my way so I'm just gonna sit on the darker bay watching the tide. They say that all good things must come to an end, and that counts for good podcasts as well. That brings us to the close of another edition of Radio Free Acton. Thanks uh, once again to Chris Armstrong of Wheaton College uh, for, first of all, for joining us at Acton University this year, and for talking with our producer Daniel Menjavar about his latest book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. You can find that, of course, on Amazon.com and other online booksellers. Uh, thanks as well to Bruce Edward Walker for joining us on another edition of Upstream. Uh, we are really enjoying uh, talking culture with him, and uh, congratulations to him once again on uh, becoming a columnist for Forbes magazine. We're looking forward to seeing what he has to say over in that forum as well. Thanks as well to uh, producer Daniel Manjvar. As I said, he handled some of the interviewing duties today, and he also did a lot of work putting this episode together. And Radio Free Acton would uh, not be as consistently good as it is of late without uh, Daniel Manjvar's capable production uh, skills. So thank you, Daniel. We appreciate that. And thanks as well to all of you for listening. We do love our listeners, and we hope that you will, if you have not done so already, subscribe uh, to Radio Free Acton. You can do that on iTunes. You can do it on Google Play. And uh, you can also tell your friends about Radio Free Acton and the work we do here at the Acton Institute, building a free and virtuous society, uh, reinforcing the foundations of a free society. It's important work, and we're glad that you're coming along joining us uh, on that task. For now, that's all we've got. We'll talk to you again uh, on future editions 
of Radio Free Acton. Talk to you later, everybody. Bye.